When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Helix Sleep. Take the Helix Sleep quiz and get up to $200 off your new mattress and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 395, The Magnificent Ferengi. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we round up the old gang, come up with a plan, and then go heading into an episode of Star Trek to find the morals, meanings, and messages. This week, the magnificent Ferengi, the one where a group of Ferengi help Quark rescue his mom from the Dominion. Ooh, 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 wait. Uh, the Magnificent Ferengi. It's a title parody based on the 1960 John Sturgis film The Magnificent Seven, which was based on the 1954 Kurosawa film Seven Samurai. It's time for the Mission Log title game. I'll go first. A Fistful of Latinum. Oh, that's good. But how about this? How about... Weekend at Keevan's. Oh, oh, okay. All right. You're going that direction. Uh, Keevan's brain. Ooh, well played, sir. How about Gala Unchained? Nice, nice. Okay, I'm going with The Quark and the Dead. Oh, that's pretty good, but I got a better one for you. How about this? How about Brunt Force Trauma? Ah, end game. Perfectly played. Perfectly done. Yes, all right. Well, we could do this all day long, but I promise... We will get to the rest of the show, and that starts with trivia right after Norman tells you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Now, before John gets into trivia, one hot second, I'm just going to take off all my clothes and jump into a bush of cactus. But, you know, I thought it was a good idea at the time. But an even better idea is John Champion with this week's trivia. I don't know, man. Those are kind of, kind of hard to compare to each other. All right. Uh, this episode, Magnificent Ferengi, was written by Iris Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler. And, uh, well, we just mentioned it right at the top of this episode is not 
what you think it is. It's not a story parody of The Magnificent Seven or Seven Samurai, which, by the way, are both great movies. Go watch them. I highly recommend the Criterion edition of Seven Samurai. Um, Ira and Hans just like the name. Uh, but here's the thing about picking a clever title. Your actors are going to take it and run with it. So Armin Shimmerman and Max Grudenchik watched The Magnificent Seven, and they lifted the things that they liked, uh, like a little little business from that movie, and they made it their own, uh, say, like counting on their fingers how many people are on their team. That is lifted directly from the film, and even some of the character traits they, they tried to incorporate into their portrayals here. This was directed by Chip Chalmers. This is the first DS9 episode Chip directed out of two total. But you may remember that he directed a handful of TNG episodes starting with season three, Captain's Holiday. He had been a longtime first assistant director on TNG and eventually worked his way into directing. He also wasn't immune to the title of the episode, and he and Jonathan West, his director of photography, uh, they lifted a few stylistic tropes from westerns when shooting this one, like the camera dollying back as the Ferengi walk through the promenade of Impacnor. You know, keep your eyes open for that sort of thing. Um, oh, I, I love the language here. Hippocat, root futures, and syrup of squill. Both of these are phrases used in a W.C. Fields movie from 1934 called It's a Gift. Side note, I'm not a huge fan of W.C. Fields, but this movie has some of his best stuff in it, and it's produced as well as any screwball comedy of the era. Uh, Fields plays this sort of like like a downtrodden city dweller, and he's going to go off and work on the farm. It, it's, it, it, it's good. Uh, it's, well, probably my favorite of W.C. Fields. Let's talk about guest stars. Now, conspicuously absent is Wally Shawn, who wasn't available, but we do get more than a few mentions of the Grand Nagus. I we wasn't in the episode! <laughs> there he is. I, I say the name, and he shows up. <laughs> I can't believe that they didn't ask me to be in this episode. Inconceivable! Perfect. And right on cue. And uh, let's see. We welcome back Cecily Adams now in her second appearance as Ishka. We talked more about her and about taking over the role from Andrea Martin back in Mission Log 379, Ferengi Love Songs. We also have Jeffrey Combs, not as Wayun. No, he is back as Brunt, formerly of the FCA. So cool to see him jump from one character to another after we've seen a good deal of Wayun recently. Christopher Shea as Keevan, and you probably remember that we met Keevan just a few episodes ago in Rocks and Shoals. We have Josh Pace back as Gala. We first met him in Season five's Business as Usual. We also have Hamilton Camp as Lek. Uh, you may not remember him, and that's understandable. He just popped in briefly in the episode Ferengi Love Songs in the Grand Nagus's chamber. Now we get to meet him for real this time, and Hamilton Camp again brings him to life. Interestingly, he started acting as a child. His earliest professional credits when he was 12 years old, and then he quit. And then he started again when he went to Second City in Chicago in 1961, and he never stopped after that. 
Hamilton was well known to audiences in the 1960s for appearing on the Richard Benjamin and Paula Prentice sitcom He and She. And ever since, he was a staple on TV and in feature films, not to mention that his voice was used in countless animation series and voiceover roles. Now, he passed away in 2005, but we will catch him one more time in an episode of Voyager. And finally, Iggy Pop. I, I, I can't believe it. We, we, have, we have Iggy Pop as the Vorta Yelgren. Iggy has more than a few acting credits to his name. Some interesting titles like Tales from the Crypt and in John Waters' film Crybaby. He is best known as a singer, though. And you have to go back to the late 60s and early 70s when Iggy and the Stooges were honing a raw style that made them the godfathers of punk. And it was through collaboration with others like David Bowie that propelled Iggy even further. Shockingly, he has a shirt on in this episode since pretty much he doesn't any other time you catch him. It will probably come as no surprise to learn that Ira Stephen Bear is a huge fan of Iggy, and that is the producer's privilege. When it's your show, you get to invite your heroes to be guest stars. And uh, it, it is funny, as a side mention here, that uh, as executive producer, well, most executive producers don't go to set when a show is being filmed because they have other things they have to do. They're prepping the next episodes down the road. So really it's up to the showrunner and the director and line producer to keep things going on set. But they said that Ira was there anytime that Iggy was on set. So that's very cool. And uh, incidentally, Iggy was someone who Ira had tried to hire a few times before, even on other shows that he'd worked on, but the timing never worked out because Iggy was always touring. And at some point, uh, he hurt himself in a stage dive. This is something that he would often do, and he had to take extended time off. So he was available for DS9, and he was still in pain which you can kind of tell by the way he's standing in much of the episode. But like the punk rock icon he is, he just kept going. This episode lends itself to a lot of movie titles. Let's hope Throw Moogie from the Train isn't one of them. Prologue. Supply and demand economics is the lesson of the day as a very triumphant quark strides into his bar, followed by a security detail carrying several large and impressive-looking crates. Summoning his patrons to gather around and lend this Ferengi their ears, Quark regales them with a riveting tale of how he negotiated for one of the rarest commodities in the quadrant, syrup of squill. Crates of it, in fact, which are worth their weight in gold-pressed latinum, not to mention the perfect topping for groat cakes. However, Quark's time in the limelight is short-lived, as Dax, Dr. Bashir, and Chief O'Brien arrive after returning from a recon mission on the USS Defiant in Cardassian space and the first from behind enemy lines since the Dominion's retreat. Their appearance alone is able to steal away Quark's crowd, leaving Quark deflated. Adding insult to injury, Odo points out to Quark that Dax, O'Brien, and Bashir are heroes— real heroes. And if things couldn't get any worse, Quark is suddenly given some troubling news. News that Rom needs to hear. After finding Rom on shift in a work tube, Quark tells his brother that Moogie has been captured by the Dominion 
and Grand Nagus Zek wants Quark to rescue her. Act 1. While crawling through a Jeffries tube, Quark tells Rom that Moogie was abducted by a Dominion patrol while returning home from Vulcan after getting an earlift. Quark also explains that Grand Nagus Zek has promised 50 bars of gold-pressed latinum upon Moogie's safe return, split 50-50 with Rom, minus Quark's generous finder's fee, of course. Rom is puzzled, though. As a female, how did Moogie leave Ferenginar? To his chagrin, Quark explains that Moogie and the Nagus have been lovers for some time, and that she's Zek's secret financial advisor responsible for the Ferengi Alliance's current prosperity. Rom is speechless. Well, almost speechless. No. Finally weaving their way out of the service tunnel, Rom suggests that they hire mercenaries, Nausicans, Breen, Klingons, oh my, to rescue Moogie. But Quark only wants to hire Ferengi. Why? Well, he believes Ferengi can be just as tough as any, for the right financial incentive and a reward of 20 bars of gold-pressed latinum, a far cry from the 50 that Zek promised. Now who to recruit first? Who is the logical Ferengi who can teach them how to be a crack commando squad? Not me, says Nog, and immediately declines, citing his duties as a Starfleet officer. Oh well, Quark will just have to look for another strategic tactical officer to plan his mission, akin to Commander Worf, someone to turn them into soldiers. And with that, Nog can't help but sign up. That makes three. Next up is the eccentric and evasive Ferengi liquidator, Lek. He's not interested in Latinum, but is baited to sign up when Quark tells Lek he would be facing the Dominion. That's four. In the brig on a Federation starbase, Quark and Rom visit their cousin Gala, who has sworn revenge on Quark for all of his business misfortunes. But Quark knows that Gala's greed is greater than revenge and buys Gala's freedom in return for joining the team. That's five. Back at Quark's, and with the team in place, Nog briefs them on their mission, to attack a Dominion internment center holding Moogie. But they have a slight problem. Aside from the constant infighting, they have no ship. However, as a shadowy and familiar figure ironically applauses Quark's so-called team for their overt incompetence, Liquidator, correction, former Liquidator Brunt, who wants in because he knows that helping save Ishka will urge the Nagus to reinstate him in the F-C-A. But the others refuse to work with even a former Liquidator. No matter, Brunt will just take his ship and leave. And with those two very specific words, his ship, the five become six. Act two. In a dimly lit cave, Ishka is escorted by two very well-armed Jem'Hadar. Suddenly, Brunt and Lek appear from behind their rocky cover and train their phaser rifles on their enemies as Quark, Rom, and Gala provide flanking support from the opposite side. Quark demands the Jem'Hadar to surrender as the highly trained and expert killers counterattack, shooting Quark in the leg and forcing the others to run and flee in terror. But before all is lost, Lek shoots Ishka in the chest instead of letting her remain their prisoner. At least that's how he explains it. It turns out that this was one of Nog's holodeck rescue simulations and one they all failed spectacularly. As Quark's team descends into chaos, he barks at them to leave him alone. Later in the bar, the self-appointed King of Squill can't see how he is going to rescue Moogie. However, the ever-perceptive Rom suggests that soldiering isn't what they do but negotiating is. It's time for Quark to figure out what the Dominion wants in trade for Ishka. 
In Cisco's quarters, it seems that Quark has procured what the Dominion wants, and wants very badly. The Vorta Kivan is still in the Federation's custody, and Major Kira, to repay Quark for saving her life, convinced Cisco to act on Quark's behalf in order to arrange Kivan's release. Cisco warns him that what he's planning is dangerous as Quark retorts, Every negotiation has its share of danger, Captain. Inside Brunt's closet, I mean ship, Quark's team, and especially Gala, wonder why they are needed anymore since this is no longer a straight-up rescue, and why they are going to Empok Nor to make the prisoner exchange. Strategic Tactical Officer Nog, living up to his name, explains that Empok Nor is familiar territory just in case things go sideways. The others are going along because things always go sideways where Quark is concerned. Finally, Quark and Rom arrive with Keevan, and after Rom dispenses with introductions and pleasantries, Keevan threatens them with death and goes to take a nap. Act 3. The Magnificent Six arrive on Empak Nor. Armed with heavy phaser rifles and power packs, Nog takes point, followed by Brunt, and they secure the entrance. Rom, Gala, Lek, and Quark, with Keevan in tow, follow closely behind after Nog's tricorder confirms that they are alone on the station. Taking command, Nog orders his team to move out to the infirmary, um, their base camp. But no one moves until Quark prods them with two strips of latinum to whoever reaches the base camp first. They may be soldiers, but hey, they are still Ferengi. Once in their slightly larger closet, Nog updates the team on their current tactical situation. The infirmary is the perfect location to stage the negotiation. It has only two ways in or out, it's near the airlock and Brunt's ship, and it's on the promenade where the prisoner exchange will take place. As Nog and Rom fortify their defensive position, Keevan admits that he's facing a rather pleasant reunion of sorts with the Dominion. Keevan failed to commit suicide before his capture, as was his duty, in case he could be used against the Dominion, just as he is right now. Several hours later, Gala screams awake his comrades as all of them decide to get some sleep, and while Gala wasn't looking, Keevan made his escape. Scrambling down a hallway, hurtling themselves over barrels and debris, the not-so-magnificent six tracked down Keevan, who barely made it on board Brunt's closet. I mean, ship. Good thing that Quark killed the engine, though, for just this reason. Well, Rom did, but it never hurts to double-check, especially when your prisoner is trying to escape. However, amidst all the chaos, a real alarm sounds, stating that the Dominion have arrived. Scrambling back through the barrel and debris-strewn hallway from whence they came, they resume defensive positions in the infirmary, and once barricaded in, Nog takes a look through a cracked bulkhead to see if the Dominion have boarded the station. They have. And then some. And Nog croaks. You could say that. Act 4. Amidst their collective cowering, Nog reminds everyone that the Dominion are on Empak Nor at Quark's request. A good point to which Brunt seconds and encourages Quark to be firm, strong, and negotiate the exchange while Keevan tries to make Quark fearful of the Dominion's intentions, and escape is their only hope. But Quark is here to get Moogie, and that's exactly what he, Rom, and Nog are going to do. Oh, and Keevan, too. The Magnificent Three emerge from the infirmary and parlay with the Vorta named Yelgren, who has Ishka close at hand. Quark, establishing a position of strength, demands the assurances of all the Jem'Hadar off the station and Yelgren's ship to drive around the block until the prisoner exchange has been made. Yelgren can keep his escort, but won't be able to give chase once Quark and his team escape to Deep Space Nine. And the only thing that keeps the Jem'Hadar at bay is the threat of Quark killing Keevan before the exchange. 
But like any counter negotiation, counter proposals lead to counter counter proposals, and Yelgren agrees to Quark's terms. Before they leave, Nog not only confirms that his grandmother is physically okay, but also with a swift slice of his knife proves she isn't a changeling for certain. Well, this seemed like a good idea at the time. With a deal ready to be made, and Mugi as good as saved, the team reminisce about returning home to Ferenganar as wealthy men. Speaking of wealth, Rom lets slip that Grand Nagus Zek's reward for bringing his Ishka back is in fact 50 and not 20 bars of gold-pressed latinum. Whoops. Hell hath no fury like a Ferengi financially scorned, as the team instantly dissolves into other chaos, ending quickly as a very trigger-happy Gala, who shoots at Quark, hits Keevan in the chest. Falling to his knees, Keevan spits his last breath at the Ferengi. Act 5. With their only bargaining chip laying dead on the floor, the really not-so-magnificent six are panic-stricken, not knowing what to do next. But Quark, like all reluctant heroes, seizes this moment as the time for the traditional heroic and inspirational speech. And even though all ten Ferengi perished at the Battle of Prexnak, they went down fighting, as tough as any species in the galaxy. But once again, fate intervenes as Nog has leaned into his engineering skills and has found a way to use a series of neurostimulators to reanimate Kievan just long enough to fool Yelgren and make the exchange for Ishka. But Nog needs more time to prepare, so Quark, doing what he does best, extends negotiations with Yelgren, annoying the Vorta to the point of agreeing to Quark's last-minute terms, to make the prisoner exchange and make some last-minute concessions, to make the exchange at a docking bay near Quark's ship as a precaution. Always one to offer sound financial advice, Ishka gives Yelgren a tip on Hippocate root futures while waiting for Quark to arrive with Keevan. And once he does, the two parties send each other's hostages down the corridor. But Yelgren notices that something is very off about Keevan, chalking it up to perhaps torture, or worse. What he doesn't see is that Nog is hiding behind a bulkhead, literally steering Keevan down the corridor using a makeshift neural stimulant network. So far, so good. As Keevan stutters and spurts down the corridor, he gets stuck walking repeatedly into a pylon. Thankfully, Mugi reaches the safety of her sons and grandson, and the rest of the now-magnificent Ferengi appear from hidden compartments, gunning down Yelgren's bodyguards and taking the Vorta prisoner as a gift to Sisko and Starfleet. As the ragtag band of Ferengi financial freedom fighters make their trip back to Deep Space Nine to collect their reward from Grand Negus Zek, Rom asks his brother how it feels to be a hero. You tell me, Quark says. It feels good, Rom responds. Quark smiles widely and proudly answers, You bet it does. The end. Wait, wait, wait. Can somebody please shut off Keevan? Thanks. Now the end. All right, look, right up front, I've never had a groat cake, and I don't know what syrup of squill is, but if they can ever reopen Star Trek The Experience, then they need that on the menu. They need to start a breakfast service. I'm, I'm just assuming it's breakfast, and that needs to be on the menu. I'm thinking like groat cakes, maybe, or like pancakes or waffles. And 
syrup of squills. I'm like, maybe maple syrup, but it just doesn't have the same It ring. doesn't. A, a groat cake can be a real thing. Groat, uh, you, you can do like a grain. You're talking like a, like a buckwheat pancake, basically. Mm. So something kind of rough, you know, more so than like a refined flour. But uh, syrup of squill, that just, uh, yeah, that, that could be a dangerous thing. You never know. I'll tell you what, whatever Lita's eating, I will eat. <laughs> You'll her. have that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. You know, I really loved how colorful this episode was. I, I said this on Twitter not too long ago where I felt that maybe some of the, the darker tones of Deep Space Nine happened when they went to the darker uniforms. Yeah. And there's just not as much color on the show overall. But Quark's jacket at the beginning was phenomenal. And actually, all of the costumes in this episode were phenomenal because they're all Ferengi costumes. Yeah, you know, and, and they really benefit from the way the show is lit and shot. Like, particularly in Quark's bar, you have that heavy, like, orange and yellow lighting. And um, if you see some of those costumes on their own out of context, you just go like, okay, that's really loud 80s slash 90s upholstery. But when they're when they're cut and detailed the way that they are for these actors and then lit as magnificently as they are here, they just look great. And, and you're so right. It's a great uh, counterpoint to the darker, more drab now looking Starfleet uniforms. I do love that scene, that whole sequence of Quark and Rom crawling through the Jeffries tubes. But I, first of all, like why they're in there and why Quark is leading at all because i mean mm. ram is the one who knows where these go but quark is leading so like that doesn't make sense but i i love that whole sequence and where they land in cisco's office because it it yeah. is such an obvious thing that should have happened in a thousand movies or tv shows where the people we're following should end up in the wrong place and this is just a perfect example of the show nailing the humor but not beating you over the head with a joke, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah, that, I laughed out loud pretty hard yes. when I saw that. And and Avery played it perfectly. They didn't linger on that moment too long. Yeah. I almost I almost kind of wish that like they, they popped into somebody like in their bathroom because you never see somebody in Star Trek. Right. Like, on the throne, right. if you will. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, like you could have taken that anywhere and they just... You know, they, they didn't force a punchline. It was just like yeah. a moment and they're like, oh, okay, we're, ne we're now going to backtrack. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, speaking of grand entrances, Brunt, oh, man, Jeffrey Combs just chewing scenery as he walks into it with the clap and the sarcasm. I mean, wonderful. And uh, followed by another great scene that, of course, he had to have the uh, the Hollow Sweet training sequence, had to have that. And I just love, um, I, I think it's Lack asking for something easier, like ambushing a couple of Bolians. We're <laughs> 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 Bolians, come on. Yeah, I know. Well, there are so many sound bites, and there's so many really, 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 like just epically funny lines of dialogue. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole thing where where Quark was telling Rom that Moogie is off the planet and she's coming back from Vulcan because she's getting an ear lift. <laughs> yes. On Vulcan. Vulcan. <laughs> I mean, that's hilarious. Like, of course right? it's going to happen there. Yes. Yeah. That's so funny. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. And I, I do have to say, look, uh, you know, my hat is off to Nog for going back to Empark Noor because uh, I would think that he might have some strong feelings about ever seeing that place again. But 
you know, apparently he got over Garrick trying to kill him pretty quickly. So that shows some uh, excellent growth on you, Nog. Yeah, I like seeing Empok Nor. I like mm-hmm. seeing that they, they stuck with the, the, the visual aspect of it being like tilted. Yeah, right. Yeah. And is it is it it's kind of like the Reliant, you know, if they shot the USS Reliant in, in the Wrath of Khan, like they shot the Enterprise, you wouldn't feel any two ways about it. But because it has that slightly canted angle right. with the ominous music, it becomes like villainous. Yeah. Like, and Empok Nor has this, this, um, this air of, uh, you know, danger and threat to it just because it's not horizontal perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, this is another one of those great episodes where, you know, it's essentially a bottle show. You you do have the scene in the Hall of Suite. You do have the scenes on the um, Ferengi ship, which is essentially, a, a, you know, an easily accessible set for them. But um, just to do that redress of DS9, throw in some different lighting, it really feels like a different place. And they, they do it brilliantly. And it, it really shows the efficiency of good storytelling um, when you can just limit those sets, limit those locations, let the characters do all the work. I man, I feel like we could go through so much of this and just pick out all of our favorite lines, but I, I love uh, Yelgren saying, I could have my Jem'Hadar storm the infirmary and kill you all. Rom says, I like our plan better. <laughs> just Oh, <laughs> he was on point. Max was so on point. In this so episode. good. They all were really. So good. Right? Yeah. Hey, and we finally got confirmation of what I have said all along which is when TV shows and movies show you that whole ritual of like taking a knife and slicing the middle of somebody's hand, it hurts. It hurts. Yeah. Yes, I love that bit with Ishka. <laughs> She's like, she has the correct response to that. It's like, what are you yeah. doing? <laughs> it's like, what's the matter with you? And then beating Nog on the head. So great. I thought uh, Iggy Pop was really good as Yelgren. Uh, he, he looked great. He looked like he was very comfortable in the part. Yeah. I don't, I don't know all of his work, some of the work that I have seen. I don't think he's like the greatest actor in the right, world, right. but I'll, I'll tell you, man, he found his lane as Yelgren. And, and, and maybe because there's a certain, you know, there's a certain uh, blank look that he usually has on his face, that kind of dour look. Right. And it's perfect for, for being like, ironically, he was funny without being funny. Yes. Yes, that, that's exactly it. And that's uh, honestly so much of what makes this episode work is like like I was saying with the Jeffrey's tube scene. It's like the humor is there. So you don't need to force a punchline. You don't need to force somebody like Iggy Pop to be funny. You just uh, look, he looks great. He's got those terrific eyes. He's got this really interesting build. Like I, I think now as of our recording, he's like, 73 years old or something and he's still like skinny muscular he just has this really interesting physical presence and they lean into that they use that to their Mm -hmm. advantage and he doesn't have to be a great actor you just need to get him on set there and for the most part with somebody like that who's not truly an actor not not a you know long trained actor you just kind of underplay everything and and it, it works it works so mm-hmm. brilliantly. And, you know, I, I thought it was a good counterpoint to Jeffrey Combs and Christopher Shea's take on uh, on playing the Vort. I mean, those those two actors are not alike, but they, they find some common style when playing Vorta. And Iggy Pop is just peculiar. And I, I want more of that. Yeah, he had that really nice scene with Moogie at the end where she's giving him financial advice and... 
it's not that he breaks character. It's just he becomes very normal. He's like, mm, that's, thank you for the tip. It's, it's a shame that I have to kill it's you. It's so like, dry you know? and so perfect. Yes. It's like you want those convers. You want to see more of those conversations. This is this is one of the reasons why I love the Orville so much. Is because those are the conversations that Seth writes towards. He leans into those very benign, you know, very common, ubiquitous type of conversations. Like, what else would they be doing while waiting for Quark to show up because he's stalling for time? Right. Ishka was is gonna do what Ishka does. She's just like, hey, you want to hear about a way to make money? Here's you know, here's a little tip for oh, you. This is just who I am. It's perfect. Yeah, it, that that scene just absolutely had to be in that episode. You no, know, it's weird. Is that it's probably not the most important scene in the episode, but it's one of my favorite scenes. And it kind of you feel kind of Quark starting to really turn into this reluctant hero. It's the scene at the end of uh, of Cisco's office when you know he got permission to to take Keevan. Cisco says, you know, breaking out of the station's holding cell is one thing. He's talking about Kira. And and to Quark, he says, what you're planning to do is considerably more dangerous. I love it when Quark just kind of, he steals his eyes and he says, every negotiation has its share of danger, Captain. Right. Yeah. You know, and yeah. then and then Kira says later, um, just shortly after, just be careful you don't turn your back on him, Quark. He's not to be trusted. And then right, that same kind of steely gaze, he goes, neither am I. Yes. I'm like, yes. Yes. Here we are. Yeah. Here we are with Quark now. What a great turn. That's, that's finding Quark. It truly is. And I think that's the thing we'll come back to at the end of our discussion today. That is truly finding Quark and nailing that character. Uh, I do want to point out just a couple of things. Uh, that double music beat when Keevan runs into the bulkhead on Impact Nor. Oh, inspired. Like normally, I don't like stuff like that because that is the punchline. But it, this was, it was just perfect. It was so good. And, and also the big question, look, we have the uh, neural uh, transmitters. Uh, is this episode finally redemption for Spock's brain that we've been looking for? Ever since? But hold on a second, John. Are you saying that in some small way, kind of like the, the spirit of Freddy Freiberger haunts those corridors? I think I am. I'll bet a bar of gold-pressed latinum that after this episode, Brunt goes home and puts Brunt, Ferengi Fighting Association, on his business cards. We will get right back to the magnificent Ferengi, but first a word from our sponsor this week, Helix Sleep. Uh, Norman, I, I'm going to let you and our listeners in on a little bit of a secret here. Uh, would you like to know where I do not a small amount of my prep work for Mission Log? In bed. Yeah, yeah. My, my wild nights are usually uh, lying down with my tablet and watching the next episode that we review or waking up in the morning and then grabbing that same tablet to read everyone's comments. Um, yeah, and I'm doing all of that from the height of comfort from my world headquarters in bed on a Helix Sleep mattress. Now, how did I get the right mattress, you might be asking, and how can you do that too so you can work or sleep or whatever it is that you do in your bed? Well, I took the Helix Sleep quiz at helixsleep.com slash mission log, and that takes us two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. So everybody's different. 
And Helix knows that. So there are a lot of different mattresses to choose from. You got soft, medium, firm mattresses that cool you down if you sleep hot, mattresses for plus size. They got everything. Now, I personally got the Twilight mattress because I wanted something that was firm. And I guess you could best describe my sleep style as on my side or on my back or moving around, except when I'm not, I'm all over the place, which is what I'm saying. And, um, this has been a huge upgrade to what I've had before. Uh, they deliver it fast, set up was super easy and fun. And uh, now I get a nice, comfortable mattress to sleep in and a place that I can actually do some mission <laughs> log work in too. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. And the crowd goes wild. <laughs> Helix is awesome, but you don't have to take our award for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 and by GQ and Wired Magazine. Just go to helixsleep.com slash mission log, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They even have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash mission log. That address again, helixsleep.com slash mission log. And of course, a big thank you to Helix Sleep for sponsoring this week's show. Hey, everybody. I'm Tawny Newsom. I know. And I'm Paul F. Tompkins. Yeah, I know. Why are you telling me? Look, and we're back with season two of Star Trek The Pod Directive. We know who we are. If you are new to the show, we are huge Star Trek fans. We're talking to other Star Trek fans about being Star Trek fans. I almost said they were huge Star Trek fans, too. There's varying degrees. Look, everyone's a Star Trek fan here. Nobody's not a Star Trek fan. Different types of fans about, you know, fans of different series collectively. It's, it's a lot of different stuff. We have a lot of fun this season. We talk to all kinds of cool people. We talk to Michelle Yeoh, Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson, Justin Simeon, my buddy Jack Quaid, and more. And more. Subscribe to Star Trek The Pod Directive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's none of our business. Yes, there are several apps. There are so many places you can listen. All that matters is that you listen and that you love us and that you rate and subscribe and, and, and subscribe. So now that I've picked all the cacti needle out of my clothes, you know, from earlier. <laughs> that was really, that was daring. That was daring of you. Yes, a good yeah. idea at the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things that I loved most about this episode, and it kind of caught me off guard, but I've said this before about Deep Space Nine. I love the secondary cast. I really do. I think that they're probably one of the most developed secondary casts on TV I've ever seen. And I know that Quark isn't specifically secondary, but he isn't. Much like, you know, Quark's character kind of laments at the very beginning of this episode. He's not Starfleet. He's not the Federation. He's not the, he's not the hero mm -hmm. in the spotlight all the time. And maybe it's just because they feel just a little bit more genuine to me. The secondary characters aren't all, if any, are Starfleet or Federation. They're the aliens. They're the analog of, I think, a lot of our own projections, we're not perfect. You know, we as human beings are going through this, this human experiment, this uh, human adventure, as Gene once coined. And I think that that's where there's a lot of magic and a lot of flexibility in these characters. Now, I love watching Rom. You know I love Rom. I love Max's Rom. But Brunt, 
Jeffrey Combs is phenomenal. And I want him to get more screen time, obviously. But in this episode, John, because I know you're a big Jeffrey Combs fan, mm-hmm. is this the first time yeah. that, that Jeffrey Combs, either as Wayoon or as Brunt, has been outstaged by another character, in this case, Christopher Shea as Keevan? You know, that is such a good question because I... Of course, Jeffrey Combs uh, comes in strong as Brunt. He has that great entrance. But then I, I think a very wise move as an actor here, he becomes part of the team because the, the focus for the team is the mission. Go back and get Ishka and let Quark make difficult decisions. So I think uh, Jeffrey's doing the smart thing by by just sort of melding with those other characters. They all have their moments. But man, when you introduce Christopher Shea as Keevan into the mix, he absolutely, he's got some of the funniest physical stuff that I think we've seen on any Star Trek. And and I was, of course, I was being a little facetious at the end of the last segment asking if it uh, serves as redemption for Spock's brain. But it really is like they watched that episode and, or at least has had it in the backs of their minds and said, you know, what if we just made this silly like it should be but make it a believable kind of silly like uh, nog's not very good with the remote and he's just gonna run into the wall and we, we don't need to do like a goofy sound effect we don't need to have him like tripping all over the place you, you just play it just mm-hmm. enough funny for us to completely buy it and i love what you're saying about the secondary characters here, because it made me think about, uh, you know, you go back to Star Trek, the original series, and because of the way TV was written then, it's all about the star. And the star of that show is William Shatner's James Kirk, and he's got to carry every episode. And of course, you have very strong support from Spock, very strong support from McCoy, but we really don't get to know those secondary characters until much, much later, and really fleshed out when we get to the movies. Mm-hmm. Then you go up to next gen and you start to feel out that cast a little bit more and get to know uh, some of those details a bit more. But then they stumbled upon something like in the episode Lower Decks uh, of next gen where they said uh, or, or even just by introducing a guy like Barkley. Like, oh, what, what if we went back to some of these characters that are not quite the heroes that we have on the bridge all the time? And what if we explore them a little bit? Now along comes DS9 and says, those have always been the most interesting characters. Let's really figure them out and let's figure out particularly the ones that don't quite fit that Starfleet Mm -hmm. mold. And this, there have obviously been a lot of episodes of DS9 that have explored that. But by letting us focus here, you know, think about how many episodes we've seen so far that, uh, of course, there are episodes that don't have Quark in them. There are episodes that don't have, uh, you know, don't have a whole lot of O'Brien or don't have, sometimes don't even have Cisco. Or maybe you've got him in there for a line or two and then he's gone. You would never do that in a show right, in the 60s. Right. But here, we, yeah, but here we are in the 90s with a show that is really purposefully fleshing out its secondary cast and figure out a way to do it that felt right. Not not just doing it because like, oh, okay, we ran out right. of ideas. And I think that the you know, longer episodic format, like say 22, 23-ish episodes a season allows you to have episodes like this, which gives you a little bit more you know, breathing room and flexibility to tell these stories. 
But um, I, I kind of yeah. want to focus a little bit on not apologizing for my attitude towards Starfleet and the Federation uh, in Deep Space Nine, at least at this moment, but mm-hmm. just being a little bit more honest about my reactions to, say, a non-Federation character like Quark or all the Ferengi in this episode, because I'm not really on board with, with where the Federation is. And I like that Quark kind of makes an issue of that at the very beginning. You know, he's in his bar, his turf, his home base. Mm-hmm. And this is where he does, you know, shine. He, he, it's, it's center stage for him. It's where his spotlight is. And he's telling people how he, you know, procured this, this rare syrup, you know, from doing this negotiation. He does what the Ferengi do best. And it just, he, you know, he, yeah. he markets that. He sells that right up until three Starfleet officers. And yes, they are main characters. You know, yeah, Dax, O'Brien and Bashir, they come in, they talk about how they came back from their mission behind enemy lines, yada, yada, yada. And everyone's like, oh, wow, tell me more. You know, it's that scene in movies where, you know, you have somebody telling that story, then all of a sudden the popular kids show up and everyone flocks to them. Right. And Quark's like, I guess I was good for, you know, whatever purpose you guys were listening to me then, now that, you know, that the hot people came yeah. in. So. You know, now I'm chopped liver, yeah. literally chopped liver or chopped groat cakes. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's such a good point because, you know, by having that scene in there, it informs it, – it, it's not the sole motivation for what Quark is doing, but it informs what the stakes mm-hmm. are as well. You know, that other people's lives matter and other people's – their their motivations, their interests, their families matter as well. It's not just the ones who we see with the big, broadly painted – hero uh that that we would see with like o'brien and dax returning yeah uh that was one of those where it seems like such a small throwaway scene but if you take that out of the episode you lose a lot of context Mm -hmm. for quark And, and again it's not just like he gets this idea because he sees them but no but it really explains to the audience like oh wait no there is something going on here there is a psychology behind what's happening yeah i mean it would be a, it was an example of how the pecking order is just in terms of kind of like the social fabric that's happening in deep space nine quark was slighted and rightfully so and the entire episode he makes it a point to to prove to everyone like you know how robust the ferengi culture is you know we can do what they do and uh, we can be yep. just as tough and just as determined and, you know, just as as focused as, you know, mercenaries or soldiers. You know, why can't it be us? You know, why can't it be Ferengi? You know, what yeah. is it that they have that we don't have? And I like how they leaned into their strengths as opposed to trying to do something that was completely against type for their for their culture. And this is where yeah. I, I'd like to make a point with the audience. And it may be controversial but maybe some of you might agree with me. And I personally believe, with the exception of you know Garrick being my favorite character, I actually think that Quark is the most consistently written character in Deep Space Nine, episode for episode for episode. Hmm. Now, what I love about this episode is that we see pretty much like the payoff of almost every lesson that Quark has learned, say, throughout the last five and a quarter seasons. And, and I want to kind of start this off with like his his triumph at the end. You know, he asks um, Rom, like, you tell me, how does it feel to be a hero? And Rom kind of questions, like, it feels good? I mean, d- does it feel good? And and Quark says, you bet it mm. does. But not a star, but not a Starfleet <laughs> hero, not a Federation hero, not a military hero, a Ferengi hero. He's a hero, but he doesn't yeah. betray his ideals. Yeah. Now, I went all the way back to take a look at the Emissary when we first met Quark. 
And Quark uh-huh. says, how can I possibly operate my establishment under Starfleet rules of conduct? And Cisco says, this is still a Bajoran station. We're here to administrate. You run honest games. You won't have any problems from me. And this is pretty much Quark in a nutshell. Commander, I've made a career out of knowing when to leave, and this Bajoran provisional government is far too provisional for my taste. And when governments fall, people like me are lined up and shot. People like me, you know, cheats, thieves, mm. you know, um, uh, schemers, you know, criminals. Mm-hmm. So that's how mm-hmm. that was Quark at the beginning. And take a look at where he's at now and the de- development in between. You know, I mean, he's had a lot of internal conflicts, you know, but he did save Odo from the mountain. He did save Kira from the Dominion. He gunned down to Jem Hadar. He saved Rom countless times. He stuck his neck out uh, when he didn't need to to pump Damar for information, you know, with a, with a bottle or two of Kanar. So it's not that these yeah. heroics are, are broad-based and sweeping and of note, but they're there. If you really, really take a look at it, they are there. Interesting. So I, I, I kind of, I kind of want to take up a contrary position here. Not, not, not because I want to, you know, argue <laughs> with you, but, but I, I feel like Quark has been redeemed more recently. Like, like we got him to drink the root beer uh, a bit more. He admitted as much. He misses that root beer. He wants to take a stand against the Dominion because he realized that's even worse for him and worse for the people around him. But I feel like there's a lot of quirk from the first few seasons where they couldn't figure out exactly what this guy was up to. And like, are we going to forgive him for, say, scheming to kill his brother? You know, um, there are moments that there are moments that feel very out of step for me. But at the same time, there are moments that make me think, okay, what we've done is we've built methodically all these growth moments for Quark to end up as a guy who has principle, who who actually can step up and be the hero when the time calls for it. So I, I, I want to forget the moments in the early episodes where it was just like, okay, Quark will literally kill somebody in order to get a profit because he's supposed to be like the this lovable rascal who is just sort of like in the gray area of the law. Um, But now we actually have a guy who does the right things. I think what's more interesting about what we see here, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about how Klingons will justify a good position or a bad position by slapping the label Mm -hmm. honor on it. Vulcans will justify a good position or a bad position by slapping the label logic on it. Now we see Quark representing Ferengi justifying a good position, but by slapping the label profit on it. You know, he he's doing something, but it's like, ooh, guess what? I get 50 bars of gold press latinum if I do this thing. Of course, he's got to share it, but he's always trying to get mm-hmm. the upper hand on the people who are helping him out. But he's doing the right thing the right people will benefit from this right thing, but he's also doing it for himself, (laughs) you know? So it just, the same way that Spock would back himself into the right position by invoking logic, it's like Quark has now figured out a way to back himself into the right position, but he can still maintain his, you know, quote, true uh, Ferengi position, his true Ferengi roots by also gaining something personal but i think that's where the consistency comes into play they just didn't turn him into Mm -hmm. you know a a heroic character 
without with with losing all of his cultural attachments. He always and yeah. and Rom too, actually all the Ferengi, but they always go back to okay, here's here's kind of the the right thing to do with a dash of Ferengi culture and it's just to make sure that they didn't lose their roots. You know, he's still a crass capitalist, we know that. You know, he would still sell out people up to a point, <laughs> we know that. But I think it's because of his exposure to Starfleet and and seeing these people do heroic things, you know, altruistically. But, you know, he doesn't um he doesn't really drink all of the root beer all at once. He under- he understands the root beer. Mm-hmm. He knows why it's sweet. Mm-hmm. He knows why it's cloying. He knows why it's insidious mm-hmm. because he's he's not naive enough to think that the Federation is purely altruistic or noble because we've seen by example that they're not. Right? But sure. I think Quark is consistent because he's honest about who he is, even if he has evolved over time from his experiences. You know, he is capable of being yeah. a hero, but he does so still in the in the under the auspices of being Ferengi. He never really betrays who he is. That's the thing, you know. Mm. And he never really mm-hmm. kind of like slaps the label of say being a capitalist the way that um, to the uh, degree that say Spock uses logic or Worf especially uses honor. So I think yeah. that his consistency comes from you know that he's going to try and get his you know get his due get his percentage out of it even if the right thing is being done. So that's why I think that he's so yeah. consistently written. But it also goes kind of part and parcel with that Armin just murders his performances as Quark. <laughs> he just kills it every time. He does. He does. It, this, it, you know, looking at his motivations, Quark's motivations, this speaks to something that we talked about before, which is that you, there is this school of thought that you can act selfishly you can act for personal gain but still land at an altruistic place by doing that you know that those two things aren't always mutually exclusive and quark is the embodiment of that he will do something that is just purely well hey i'm a ferengi i get to profit from it of course i'm going to do this thing but it also happens to be the thing that is the morally correct thing to do and I, I like it when, like, that's the sort of moral gray area that I like DS9 to play with, rather than Cisco making a terrible decision right. or, or you know, completely dismissing uh, uh, his duty or his um, uh, obligation and loyalty to the people around him. I, I will say, as we kind of wrap up this segment, I, I feel like the biggest suspension of disbelief for this episode for me, I mean, apart from usual stuff science fiction stuff star trek stuff was cisco and kira helping quark to spring keevan from the brig and allowing this whole mission to happen <laughs> in the first place i i have to imagine that keevan is still of some strategic importance and i also imagine that cisco would have had a more negative reaction to quark's plan or being involved in any sort of dominion activity just happening at all Right. At all. So that you have to take with a big grain of salt. Instead, it's this tiny scene in Cisco's uh, uh, office, and they're just like, yeah, well, you know, you, you helped us. We're here to help you. Go. <laughs> there was no no discussion about your what? You're trading a Vorta. You're walking into a trap. You, you can't, you know. And I think that's um, where this, uh, this episode goes from kind of like the heavy science fiction and the drama that we've seen in the past episodes or even in the past season and a half to something that's a little more like sci-fi sitcom. You just kind of go with it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and DS9, you know, for better or for worse, it, it can be a, a lot of times sci-fi soap opera, but then it can also be sci-fi sitcom. And when I say that, that's not necessarily uh, a negative criticism or a slight against the show. In the best sense of that, a soap opera drags you in because you you want to see what the characters are doing. You want to see the complexity of the relationships. DS9 does that very well for the most part. And then when it's sitcom, well, it's an episode like this where you have this preposterous situation, but they pulled their punches where they needed to and made the comedy fit in this universe. So you didn't feel like we're just doing slapstick and just doing jokes for the sake of doing jokes. So once we get past all of that, once we get past the difficult things that are to swallow, um, there's actually a story here. And, and we do get to see Quark and Rom and all these other Ferengi challenge themselves and work together in principle apart from just purely the profit motive that that's what really makes you pull for these guys no matter what and everybody here exceeds their own limits they're not perfect but they do more than they think they can and then they win the day and i have to say you know before we get to our final summary this is probably the most feel-good episode of ds9 that i have watched in a very long time Somewhere, back in the 90s, someone missed a trick by not making a video game out of steering Keevan through the promenade. Well, after we've uh, taken everything into consideration, these Ferengi were indeed magnificent. So let's get into our final analysis where we take a look at does the episode hold up for us in the end? And do they have any uh, morals or meanings or messages that we can speak of? So, uh, John, what, like, did you, what did you think? I, I feel like we've been sort of giving it away since the beginning. Um, Just a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, this episode is magnificent. And, uh, I mean, there are a lot of ways to slice that. Regardless of what the story is here, you're, just, you're starting with a killer cast. And this is what DS9 does best, which is what we were saying in the last segment. You know, they've already laid the groundwork over long periods of time, and they let all that work pay off here, you know, particularly with Quark. It really is his episode. But everybody else, even just the bit with Keevan, just developing him a little bit from what we saw in Rocks and Shoals. Oh, wait, what happened to that guy? Aha, now we're going to put him to use again. So they didn't forget the good ideas and the good actors that they've had before, which Trek is usually really bad about doing. You could just watch this cast all day, do nothing, and still be entertained. So it, it is just the killer cast. And honestly, I could stand to see a whole lot more Iggy Pop. Mm-hmm. And a whole lot more Christopher Shea in DS9. And since they are cloned, it is too bad that we don't. Yeah. Spoiler yeah. for all of us. But yeah, it, it's just a shame that we don't get a lot more of them. You know, they did in a serious way with the Dominion arc. They got to follow these character threads and give those payoff. But now we get to do the same thing with a comedic one-off. And this one's going to stick with me as well. It'll stick with me just as much, maybe if not more, than some of these 
big, heavy, dramatic arcs with a lot of spaceships and a lot of, you know, wartime daring. Here we have the the quality of characters doing the work in a totally enjoyable, dramatic, and very comedic episode. So they manage to have their cake and eat it too. Their groat cake, John? Their groat cake, yes, with syrup mm-hmm. of squill. Yeah, they, they managed to do that. Uh, they, they let the characters and the relationships uh, do the work and then pay off for them. And and on top of all that, we actually have a story that would work purely on its own, too. So we got the best of both worlds, and I love when that happens. So, yeah, does it hold up? <laughs> Absolutely it holds up. <laughs> what about you, Norman? Are you, are you feeling like I am here? Yeah, it holds up for me 100%. And, you know, it— it won me over. It didn't start with with me on its side. And maybe because mm. I was thinking like specifically like, is this going to be just kind of like an interpretation of Seven Samurai or the Magnificent Seven? Right. So it won me over over time. And I, I didn't really understand why. But then after subsequent viewings, as we do when we prep for these shows, you really think about it. On, on paper, this should have been very... What was that phrase we were talking about? GNDN, uh, go nowhere. Yeah, or... go go. Yeah, so painted on the some of the ductwork on the original Enterprise, GNDN goes nowhere, does nothing. Yeah, and it yeah. just it very well could have gone that way, but it didn't. And I think that it's because there are these rare occasions, uh, much like you were saying, where Star Trek really gets it right when it comes to taking a look at the the culture. Of, of these characters, in this case, the Ferengi. And we've seen a lot of Ferengi characters develop over time, you know, especially in Deep Space Nine. I mean, look at Nog. Nog has gone from basically kind of like a street urchin to a Starfleet officer. Rom has gone from this kind of like this uh, snivelly ne'er-do-well brother to one of the best engineers on the station, responsible for right. holding off the Dominion because of his idea. Yeah. And Quark has come full circle in almost every sense, as I mentioned before. But along the way, they don't lose what they are. They don't lose the touchstones that make them Ferengi. As a matter of fact, it it's helps them with these internal dialectics, these, these conflicts that they have to kind of push past and develop as characters. You know, they're still greedy, even to each other. You know, they're still driven by profit, but they choose those moments at the right time. And they develop with those moments at the right stage uh, to tell this story. And for me also, what... what separates this episode from the episodes that we have seen recently. I'm a firm believer in that well-written and performed characters will always succeed over telling stories that have space battles and explosions. That, yes. that is Amen for me perfectly. That. And that there, yeah. it's not saying that they're mutually exclusive, but there are mm. there, the time and place and as long as it serves the narrative. But when you write well for characters and when you have the right actors and performances, they always serve the story always and um in particular armin and max and aaron to some degree but armin and max at the very beginning they just sell you on the fact that these brothers have to do something they can finish each other's sentences their emotional connectivity with just glances that makes them very rare and very special you believe that they are these two in-universe brothers and they're just actors working with each other because they still apply those little cultural nags that just seem normal and and uh, and effortless, and mm-hmm. that's consistent. And when you write well, you get great consistent characters. 
But also, you have this incredible support cast of characters, and I think that's really anchormaned by Christopher Shea. Yes. I mean, as, less, as much yeah. as I love Jeffrey and as much as I love everyone who appeared as, as the Ferengi, the, the uh, Ferengi magnificent um, you know, support characters, I've never seen a character go from one tone that Keevan was in Rocks and Shoals to this tone where I was laugh out loud you know, just kind of uh, tearing up at some at some of the uh, the, uh, the physical gaffes that he was performing. I I just couldn't believe it was the same actor, and I think that that's just yeah. really rare. Oh, so good! And, and isn't that funny? Because he, as the guest star, he, he is the support of the support. Mm-hmm. You know, because it really we're focused. Other than Quark, we're we're focused on the secondary and guest characters. And uh, Christopher Shea, yeah, just his second and final performance in DS9. Ugh. I, you just, like Jeffrey Combs, you just keep coming, you just keep cloning him and, and give me Keevan 4, Keevan 9, Keevan 11, whatever. Uh, sign me up. But, okay, is this, though, we, we've talked in praising language about the characters, the story, the development, these terrific arcs that they've given us. Is there a message here? Is there a moral or meaning to take away? Oh, I definitely think so. I think that um, some of the messages that I mind from this are heroism comes in, in many forms, many motivations, and when, and where and when you least expect it. I think that um, everyone loves being the hero of their own story. And I think that you have to be true to who you are and play to your strengths. Um, I mean, think about it. Like, whoever thought that the Ferengi right? The Ferengi would become so incredibly complex as a culture and a race. I mean, remember when we were first introduced to them in TNG with the, they're kind of like weird, savage, bar- barbaric uh, nature yeah, and the yeah. way they were hunched over and they used the electro Feral, whips. Feral yeah. was the word. Feral. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then now you have, I'm not saying that all Ferengi have, have evolved this way, but a, a majority of the Ferengi characters that we've been exposed to have changed uh, significantly over time. And that's where I think that the Deep Space Nine Raiders succeed with the Ferengi, uh, where they don't necessarily with the Klingons and to some respect the Cardassians, just in terms of that consistency. I think Quark, and uh, to credit Armin specifically, he breathes life into Quark with the greatest care. And he helped develop him in a way that makes Quark's, uh, his growth like organic and believable and allows us to suspend certain moments of disbelief when Quark is put in these extraordinary circumstances and we want to see more we want to see where that is going to go and i think that understanding that the writers made this incredible decision not just to tell us about this but show uh how cork and say his team were they they weren't good soldiers and they knew that and and rom knew that and they pivoted from doing something that they were terrible at to doing something that they were natural at that's playing to your strengths they weren't good at fighting. They were good at negotiating. And I think that that's, that's where this, this episode really has like this magic to it that you as the audience were like, yes, of course you would be that way. Like, why would you? It's like it's, it's the square peg in the round hole. You don't force the issue, especially where profit is concerned. <laughs> How about you, John? Yeah, I, I really end up at the same place. And I, I feel like I... Uh, already covered a lot of this ground in the last segment, but um, it has taken time to figure out who Quark is exactly and what this journey will be for him. And um, as you just said, it's really Armin breathing that life into him. So we believe it. Sometimes it is frustrating to me, like 
again, everybody ignores the fact that he was ready to commit murder before. Uh, but now we've gotten to a point that he's had just enough root beer or he's better adjusted enough to admit that he cares about his family and he can do things that are more altruistic. We've given Quark some redeeming qualities that go beyond just being the lovable criminal. Um, and it shows it with the right influence and the right motivation. He can actually rise to the challenge to be a leader and he can instill those qualities in the people around him. He, he gets to be a leader in this episode. It's really cool. And you kind of want people from Starfleet to have seen that because you, you sort of want to go back to the beginning of the episode and go, no, look, he, he just pulled it off too. He, he was just as good in just as important a moment. So I like to think that if there's a message here, uh, it's about growth of character. It's about rising to that challenge to be heroic in whatever the situation calls for. And that, well, gosh, for a guy like Quark, or maybe all of us, that even the most annoying or self-centered can truly be heroic. So, John, how does it feel to be a hero? You tell me. It feels good. You bet it does. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Waltz. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, and Mike Shabel. Now that we've done the magnificent Ferengi, I still want a crossover episode where Armin Shimmerman as Quark teams up with Richard Benjamin as Quark. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.